Um, 2 Samuel 23, and we're looking at the mighty men of valor. And really, as we study this, it's really for us. And how can we be warriors in God's kingdom? How can we be mighty men and mighty women of valor? And this is in 2 Samuel. There's a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11. It actually says the men of valor, the mighty men of valor. Here, it just says the mighty men. These are the names. And verse 8 of 2 Samuel 28, looking at verses 8 through 39. These are the names of the mighty men David had. Um, Joshabib, uh, Bashabith, the Tecomanite, chief among the captains. He is called Adino, the Ezraite. So that's easier than saying Joshabath, the Bashabath, the, you know, whatever. Uh, Adino, I like that. Because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now, we, we think of the story of Samson. Of course, he had supernatural strength. But remember what he did. He killed a thousand Philistines at one time. It tells us there clearly it was with the jawbone of a donkey. But here in this passage, it just says he did it. Now in the King James, it actually says this. He killed them all by lifting up his spear against 800 and slew them all at, at one time. You know, it's, it's interesting if you look at each of these guys and, and see that they're an illustration of a picture. In, in the actual Hebrew, it just says, and he lifted up his arms and it's understanding with a spear. But when we think of lifting up the arms, it takes us to several other passages in the scripture. A matter of fact, you might remember the very first time God ever said, write this down, this is gonna become scripture. We think, well, it's Genesis chapter one, right? Verse one, no, no, it's actually in Exodus 17. And this is where the children of Israel had all left Egypt and this group of wicked men, the Amalekites, kept picking off the weary and the weak and the elderly and the half-hearted and finally God said, stop, turn and fight against these incredible warriors. But you gotta remember, the children of Israel, they never even held a sword. The Egyptians wouldn't allow it. They had no idea even how to use a bow or a spear. They, they, were, the, they were put down and discouraged from ever being warriors at all because they were slaves in Egypt. They wanted to control them. And so all of a sudden now, they, they gotta turn and fight these trained warriors, the Amalekites. And God instructs Moses and his brother Aaron and another elderly guy, her, to go up on the top of the mountain overlooking the valley. And Moses is standing there and, and his inclination was just to cry out, God help these, these poor slaves. <laughs> they, they, and they're, they're fighting in battle. They've been suppressed in every way from ever learning how to be warriors. How are they gonna win this help? And, and, and God, heard Moses and he was winning, they were winning the battle and Moses puts his hands down and said, look at that, we're winning. And he looks back and they're losing. And through trial and error, he realized, 
I've got to keep my hands up. And it wasn't for a couple of hours. It was from the breaking of the dawn until the sun went down. And it tells us it was such a difficult thing for this 80-year-old man that they eventually held his rod above him and, and Aaron on one side and her on the other side helped him keep his hands up. So he was probably laying on it and pushing it and leaning over here. Leaning. It was a difficult thing. But we, we find in the scripture that to be a mighty man of valor, you've got to be a mighty man in prayer, lifting up hands. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul telling young Timothy, who was just a missionary with him, he had never pastored a church, and he said, easy peasy to be a pastor of a church. No, he didn't say that, but uh, Timothy was wanting to quit, and uh, he didn't want to keep pastoring. This was too hard, and Paul just said, look, get everybody praying. He says in 2nd First Timothy 2, 1, just first of all, the number one priority, get everybody praying with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving for all men. Just, I exhort you, I beg you, get everybody praying, whatever it takes to provoke one another to love and good works in the area of prayer, do it. And then he says specifically, God's design, God's desire in the church he says in 1 Timothy 2, 8, in particular, that men everywhere, they wouldn't be ashamed. They wouldn't be feeling non-manly. <laughs> they would feel manly by lifting up hands and surrender, crying out, Daddy, Daddy, pick me up, hold me. I need your help. Showing dependence, showing surrender showing a willingness to be radical for God. I wish men would lift up their holy hands in prayer, men in particular. Women seem to, to have a more desire to have that precious spirit of dependence on God in prayer. But men, it's a pride issue. Men, it's a, something that's got to break in us, uh, uh, th that we got to you know, realize that, yeah, I can't lift up my hands and at the same time be macho cool. I, I've got to let go of all my pride, all my coolness, if you would, and, and just be this humble child lifting up holy hands. Men would become mighty men of prayer, <laughs> conquering, if you would, mighty battles by lifting up holy hands. David said in Psalms 134 that he learned this mighty warrior of all the mighty warriors that day and night when he would go into the sanctuary of God that he would lift up holy hands and he found it as a beautiful incense, a beautiful holy worship unto God. Just that gesture, just those few inches <laughs> breaking all that pride, that, that shell of of. Our own, self, our own self has to die. and Just cracking that away and just letting that arrogance fall away from us as we just lift up hands to God. It's interesting that the Lord said the one thing he doesn't think he'll see in the generation before his returning is a church praying. He actually tells in Luke 18 a story about he says, I, I want to tell you this story because 
It's my desire that men would always pray and not lose heart. You know, prayer is all spiritual. You know, I can preach and I can see if you're moved. I, I, can, it's, I can physically tell sometimes. And then, of course, afterwards, you will tell me. Your heart's been stirred to a new height spiritually. Something rattled you out of the low, misty bog that you were in. And through the word of God, it's been shaken to now walk in the Lord with a firmer way. When we worship, we can see it. We can sense it. We are personally stirred often by worship, even though our real motive should be stirring the Lord. We ourselves want to be stirred as well in worship. Evangelism, you can tell. People hate you or they'll receive the Lord, but you, you can see. But when prayer, it's, it's all spiritual. We have to wait on the Lord. Often we pray and God doesn't allow us to see our answers to prayer because it would be too distracting for us. But we believe that when we ask according to his will, he hears us and we have the very thing we ask of him. But in that parable, Jesus says, I'm saying to you this, men would always pray, not lose heart. And he says about a, a widow who goes to this judge who didn't fear God or respect man. And she just persists saying, help me, help me, help me. And the judge, his wicked heart didn't change. He still had no fear of God. He still didn't care about poor people, only rich people that could help him out. And he finally said, because you're wearing me out, I'm going to do everything you want so you leave me alone. <laughs> and God said, Listen to this. If you can move a wicked man's heart through persistence, how much more God who loves you, who already wants to answer your prayers, who wants to bless you, his heart's gonna be moved through persistence. But then Jesus ends that in Luke 18 by saying, but when the son of man returns, will he find anyone crying out to him day and night? Will he really find faith on the earth? Faith on the earth would be visible to God with people crying out to him, persistent in prayer, day and night. Again, I, I think that Adino here, who had this great victory, almost as great as Samson, a man who had supernatural strength, had great victory because he lifted up holy hands. <laughs> And this analogy and this picture of prayer for you and I. We see the next guy. It says in verse 9, after him was Elazar, the son of, we say in English, <clears throat> dodo. But in Hebrew, it's doo-doo. And, uh, I, 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 you know, I remember uh, one of my trips to Israel, you know, our, our tour guide said, and, hey, just let you know, up here in the driver's seat is doo-doo. We're like... That's horrible. Who did that? That's not funny. That's, oh, that's, that's his name. And it's like, hey, anybody see doo-doo? No, wow. No, I, no we're good. It's, it's his name. I, it's, you know, as you travel the world, you realize there's a lot of people's names that sound very weird to us in English. Of course, our names sound weird to them also. Um, I could tell you some funny stories about that, but I won't. Anyway, this guy, doo-doo, dodo for us, um, he was one of three mighty men that David, when they def defied the Philistines, were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. And in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 23, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand 
was weary. And I love this saying, and his hands stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And then the people returned after him only to plunder. So they all show up and get all the gold and the silver and, and the, the spoils after uh, Dodo didn't back down. The sword stuck in his hand. I'm sure he was probably somewhat dehydrated and they're giving him water and they're massaging his wrist trying to get his hand opened up. But he comes to this field and, and he, he, he realizes everybody else is overwhelmed with the numbers of people coming here. But I, I'm not able to run away. It's not in my nature and he just says, they may all kill me, but I cannot budge. And he just grabs onto that sword and his sweating is wanting to slip away. The blood, no doubt from those he's killed is drenching his hand, slippery and, and difficult it was, but yet he did not let go. He just grabbed harder and harder. And of course we know that picture right clearly, don't we? The sword. Ephesians 6, 17 tells us that the, as it describes that of a warrior, it comes down to the sword and it says, the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God in Ephesians 6, 17. So this is a picture of a man whose hand got stuck, if you would, to the word of God. In Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is like a two-edged sword, but it's even greater than the power of a two-edged sword. It's living and more powerful than that, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In 1 John 2.14, it says, and I've written to you young men because you're strong. Why are these young men strong? He says, because the word of God abides in you and you are gonna overcome the wicked one. Interesting, he says, you young men who are warriors, whose hands are stuck to the sword, you are gonna have victory over the enemy, Satan. You know, I just need to stop here and just make a couple of notes. You say, Brian, we've just got through studying the life of, of King David, and I, I've not heard of Dino, and I've not heard of Dudu, and I, how, how is it these men that were so mighty are not even listed in the stories up to this point? Good question. This is, this is my point is that when we talked about those 400 and then later 600 mighty men of valor of King David, that's really sort of an understatement. These guys were almost as great as Samson in some ways. They had victories that are really unparalleled. But yet we know the scripture is written for our admonition and teaching, the Lord tells us in Romans 15, whom the ends of the ages come. So really these scriptures were always written for us who would be battling the evil one in these last days. And they win. I've been through a lot of spiritual battles, guys, 
And I don't think I've won that many of them. I've gotten pummeled and I've survived. <laughs> but to say I had victory over the wicked one, I, I honestly can't remember that ever happening <laughs> so clearly. I, I think after the fact, I'm like, yeah, I think we won that one, you know? Lost an arm and a leg and half of my head, but I, I, yeah, I think we, we won. Doesn't feel like it, but it's a, it's a tough thing, you know? I, I think of, you know, the difficulties that Job went through against Satan. Man, that was tough. And he lost his children, devastated him. And then he lost all his wealth. He's in poverty. And then he lost his health. And then his best friends come up and say, ha, holy Job, righteous Job, this man who worships God so purely and so perfectly better than any of us. You're a sinner. That's why this is happening. And they begin to speculate, ripping and tearing about sexual sin and oppressing the poor and mistreating his wife and, and just goes on and on and on. These guys are just tearing him to shreds. And he had just to hang in there, hang in there. But he did. Job's hands were lifted up, praying throughout the book of Job. Job's hand was stuck to the sword constantly quoting at that time the word of God that he understood and knew. And here we see that this guy won because he said, whatever happens in this battle, I'm going down with that sword so firmly in my hand that I won't even able to get it unstuck <laughs> the time this battle is over. And he hung on to it. It tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15, that all of us are to be diligent to present ourselves one day before God approved concerning the Bible. That all of us are gonna be asked by God if we were workers in the word of God to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. I, like many of you, really do lean a lot on my feelings. Do I feel like it? Do I feel up to it? Does it feel good? Does it feel bad? Does it feel hard? And, and there is a point in maturity where you've got to say, the Bible's not devotionally inspiring me. I'm studying this passage that's hard to understand and I'm not really feeling like I'm getting strengthened spiritually by this passage in Ezekiel or the rough words of the prophet in the book of Malachi sort of rebuking me. But yet God says, I need to know every Bible verse throughout the scriptures and have not just known it, casually have read it, but I'm gonna stand before God and he's gonna ask the most precious thing I gave to man on planet earth, my very DNA, my very fingerprint, to man was the Bible, the word of God. And what have you done with it? Well, Adino, I mean, excuse me, um, Dodo stuck to it and it did not depart. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Are, are you talking about 
Isaiah? Yes. Are you talking about Obadiah? Yes. All the scripture is given by inspiration of God. No, surely not the book of Revelation. That's really hard to understand. There's a special blessing for reading the book of Revelation. Just for reading it, there's a blessing from God. But all the scripture has been given by inspiration of God as profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction and in righteousness. Listen to this, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peter says, all the scripture is for life and godliness. It's not just for spiritual things, that the word of God will help you out in practical things as an employee, an employer, raising kids, in marriage, how to be a friend, how to have a humble heart, how not to be prideful. I mean, it just, the list goes on. Everything that's important in this life, the Bible and meditating and reading it and studying it will prepare you for this life and the life to come and in spiritual <clears throat> things as well. In Psalms 1, boy, I don't know how you can get away from this passage. It says that the man who is wise is the man who delights, makes his delight. It actually says, I'm, if I'm not delighted in the word, I'm going to make myself delight in the word. We're, we're strange in these human fleshes, things that are often the best things for us we hate, and the things that we should hate we love. And so we got to guard our hearts. And he says, I'm going to make God's word my delight. And in that law, I'm going to meditate day and night. And it says, if you do that, You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. You ever seen a river in the desert? No water, but yet it's tapped into a spring underneath it, and it's a giant, lush oasis. Those trees that are planted right into the water source brings forth fruit in a season whose leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. What? Life and godliness. Everything you do in this time while you're abiding here on planet Earth and for eternal life. It says here, we're going to be prosperous. I don't know how you cannot take that challenge and say, wow, I'm going to do that. Interesting, the longest chapter in the Bible is whatever chapter you're teaching, Brian. No, not that's true, not true. Don't think that. Um, <laughs> The longest chapter in the Bible happens to also be in the center of the Bible. Psalms 119, which is an entire chapter on the importance of God's word. Interesting, isn't it? The center of the Bible is the longest chapter of the Bible, and it's just encouraging you to, to just eat up and live in and meditate on day and night, the word of God. Psalms 138, two says that God has lifted up his word even above his name. Wow. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus is saying right now, while you're abiding on earth, I would rather you lift up my word in worshiping me. You wanna worship me? Be in the word day and night. You know what? I'm going to pull out the mother of all blessings. No one can do greater than this blessing. I will prosper you in everything you do. If your hand will cling to that sword and meditate in it day and night. 
Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word, every word. That's the first word of Genesis and the last word of Revelation. That's the fun stuff in the gospels. It's the fun stuff in the stories of the narratives. And then it's also in the difficult stuff of doctrine and of prophecy. All of this, God has designed to flow through our hearts, to meditate in it day and night, and all of it will make us complete, prepared to do great works. And on this earth, we may never get mentioned, even though we killed 800 men at one time through prayer, even though we really are the guy who won the victory and everybody showed up afterwards and said, oh yeah, I was here, I was over there. You didn't see me, but I was over there. I don't think you were here. I think you guys all took a hike. I think I was the only guy here. Oh, well, that's the way you tell the story. That's the way God tells the story. God will tell your story correctly when you get to heaven. And I think a lot of the people in heaven that will be the greatest were people that were never mentioned on earth as anybody at all because they were great men and lifting up holy hands and clinging to that sword. Well, the next person we see is a guy by the name of Shama. And this guy is a picture of faithfulness. After Shama, the son of Agi, the Haragite, a Philistines had gathered together into the troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils so that people fled from the Philistines. And notice in verse 12, he stationed himself in the middle of the field and defended it, killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, this word lentil, it's one dash away from being barley. So some translations say barley. As a matter of fact, if you look at First Chronicles, it actually says uh, barley, and then later down it says, it says lentil. So either way, it was not a very um, expensive crop. It was the cheapest of all crops. It wasn't valuable in and of itself. But simply, this guy, Shama, was told, here's your boundaries. Do you see the edge of the boundaries? Just when the lentils stop or where the barley edges end, this acre or two or three are yours to defend. Don't let anybody get by you. Don't let anybody. And he stationed himself there. And no matter what happened, he defended it. He did not move. Interesting that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4 that one day when we come and stand before the Lord, the Lord is going to judge one thing above all other things. He says, moreover, it's required of a steward, a servant, a person who's a believer and a leader, that one be found faithful. That's it. It's interesting that God isn't wanting us to do heroics. People often don't just faithfully pray, but they'll spend all night in prayer with the church if you wanna have an all night prayer meeting. And it's just, they, they don't regularly fast and seek the Lord, but yet you wanna fast for 30 days, let's do it. You know, I'll be the number one spokesman. And you know, God doesn't need people to do big giant splashes. And there's times that God does call for great fastings or great nights of prayer. I'm not saying that, but they can't make up for the guy who's just being the turtle, right? The turtle and the hare, we know this story. 
just faithfully plugging away. And even though we're putting you, Shama, over there, not in front of the castle, we're not putting you over there and in, in, in front of the, you know, the expensive real estate. We're putting you way out there in that little nothing barley field. He says, it's irrelevant. It's not whether what I'm doing seems to be great in the eyes of man. Am I being faithful in the eyes of God? And that's really something only you can answer. And it is something the Lord will ask you on that day. I'm, I'm cocking up your light. Well, Lord, I prophesied in your name. <laughs> Lord, I did miracles in your name. Lord, I preached to thousands in your name. Yeah, but I, I'm, just, I'm just asking, were you faithfully serving, faithfully giving, faithfully praying, faithfully just living the Christian life in a way that I can honor that will truly bring about great victory. Jesus in Matthew 25 says on that day when he comes to judge, he said he's gonna separate the sheep from the goats. And, and he's gonna take a group of people and, and, and he's gonna say to one, I'm giving you three talents, I'm giving you two talents, I'm giving you one talent. And these people that come up, <laughs> he said, Lord, you gave me five talents and I was able to get five more. He says, you did faithfully, come. The guy who had three, he said, I, I was able to get three more. It's not very much. But the guy who had one <laughs> said, oh, I was afraid you're a hard man. You sow where you don't reap and you know, blah, blah, blah. You reap where you don't sow. And, and, and the Lord rebukes him and says, you wicked an unfaithful servant. Where is that one coin? He had lost it. <laughs> he had said, well, I can, give, I can pay that back. Here's the one back. And he said, you know, if you were all afraid and you were lazy and you, had, you could at least put it in the bank and got a tiny bit of interest on it. But the, the Lord in that picture of faithfulness is showing that he wasn't just keeping on. And with the, the sheep and the goats, it's like, I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was prison, you visited me. I was, Lord, when do we ever do that to you? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. It wasn't about doing something big to be noticed. It was just faithfully plugging away. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro throughout the whole earth to find that person who is loyal, also translated faithful, that he might come and strengthen that man. Right now, God says, my eyes are going to and fro throughout the earth. I'm trying to find superstars. I'm trying to find celebrities. I'm trying to find people that'll do radical things. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm going throughout the earth. My eyes are looking for somebody who's just being faithful in prayer, faithful in the word. They're not trying to give millions, they're just giving their tithe, plugging away. They're not trying to, you know, get a giant crusade together to bring thousands. They're just faithfully washing the saints' feet and sharing the Lord with those they come in contact little by little. It's a powerful thing to just stand in the lentil field and be faithful. 
Well, then we find in verse 13 to 17, there are three mighty men who were in the middle of a battle and David was fighting against his own city, Bethlehem. And he says to these guys, oh man, I wish I could drink some of that sweet, cool water of Bethlehem. And the guys overheard it and they risked their lives running down into Bethlehem and sneaking through to just fill up a thing of water. And they bring it back to David. <laughs> and they say, here you go, David. And he's like, you could have died. I have water here, but oh, this is the sweet, fresh water of, of that place he grew up and drank in Bethlehem. And he dumps it out as a sacrifice to the Lord. But we see the beauty and why these men were raised up because they were willing, as Romans 12, one says, it's a reasonable service that we would give our bodies as a living, holy sacrifice. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 that I've been poured out now as a drink offering. My time of departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but all those who loved his appearing. Paul says, I've been living this life as a living, holy sacrifice. And now I'm going to Rome. I'm going to be put to death there. And when they're killing me, it'll be like the final ability of my body to be a living sacrifice to God. And then there's going to be a crown of life. And he says, not just for me, but for all of those who have this same heart in being, saying, I am willing, Lord, to live a life in sacrifice to you, just to give you a, to refresh your spirit with a cold glass of water from Bethlehem, from the house of God. That's what Bethlehem means, the house. And so he's simply saying here, that's all I want to do. And we see that these men wanting to so bless their king did this incredibly sacrificial thing to give him a cup of cold water and they became some of the three top mighty men because of that. Well, in verse 18 and 19, we see Abishai. And it says in verse 19 that he although he was a mighty man with great exploits, he did not attain to the first three. Why? Because he never submitted to the will of David. Abishai was always saying, let me go kill Saul. And David's like, no, we're not killing Saul. Come on, just let me do it real quick. No, you don't have to do it, I'll do it. No. <laughs> and, and, and Abishai was unwilling to hear the heart of the king and walk in that submission to the king. And later on, when a guy named Shammai was kicking dust on David, and he's like, let me go kill him. And David's like, what do I have to do with you, Abishai? Leave me alone. Stop it. I'm tired of this. No. Come on. I got to kill him. Then afterwards, hey, let me go kill him now, David. No. The still, the answer, it was this guy willing to be a warrior, but not willing to live a life in tender submission to that gentle breeze of the heart of their king. And then we have an interesting story by this guy by the name of Benaniah in verse 20. He was the son of Joadiah, of a valiant man from Kabazil, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion 
in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. <laughs> and after that, he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him. All he had at the time was a staff. But he wrestled the spear out of this spectacular Egyptian warrior's hands and killed him with his own spear. That heart of a warrior. There he sees these two awesome guys. They were unusually strong, mighty warriors. They themselves were giant guys that looked like lions. You've seen people that sort of take on the attributes of animals sometimes. And these guys looked like lions. They were mighty, mighty warriors, two against one. And, and he said, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and he went after, not really, probably able to handle one, but yet he had to handle two at the same time and defeated them. But after winning against two lion-like guys, he then had a situation with a lion who was probably killing villagers and people. And they're like, hey, you're one of the David's mighty men. We've got this lion. And, and we finally sort of have him for temporarily caught, but we can't do anything about him. He's going to get out when he gets hungry enough. And it's snowing. I, I don't know if you ever want to do anything in the snow, but everything's hard in the snow. Your hands are freezing, your feet are freezing. And, oh. and then the idea to climb down into a pit, <laughs> slipping and sliding, you're freezing. But he took on and defeated that lion on a snowy day in the pit. The lion had every advantage. These two lion-like men had every advantage. And then finally, there was a spectacular man. Again, he was at a disadvantage. Again, he was just out for a walk. And this guy shows up, this mighty warrior. All he has is a stick, his walking stick. And this guy's got a spear. And yet he still goes to battle again in a disadvantaged situation. Understand, it says in Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There's this spirit of a warrior who says, yes, Satan is powerful. Yes, I'm getting pounded by the enemies. I think of Job as he was getting pounded and pounded and pounded. And, and, and Job had no help. His own wife was saying, curse God and let him kill you. He's going to his best friends. And he says, oh, sorry, comforters are you guys. You're pounding me. The devil's pounding him. His flesh, he's lost everything. His kids have all died. It's, I mean, I can't tell you what grief he must have been in. No strengthening, what a disadvantaged situation he was in. But yet he had that heart to say, naked I came in this world, naked I go out, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he says, though God were to slay me, I would still trust in him. Boy, we go through the scriptures, we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego against the mighty emperor Nebuchadnezzar saying, bow down and worship this idol. No. Well, we're going to heat that furnace up seven times hotter. It doesn't matter. We're not backing down. No matter how disadvantaged the situation is. Are we in a generation 
as Christians disadvantaged? Boy, I've lived 57 years on this planet and I've never seen a time that Christians are warned, keep your heads down. (laughs) If you you wanna go into the workplace and make it clear you're a born again Christian, you are gonna suffer. You go to school and you let everybody know that you got your Bible in your backpack and you're reading it during lunchtime, you're, you're in trouble. We're gonna pound you for not being pro-transgendered and homosexual and you're, we're gonna get pounded for not being politically correct in many ways. Yet the Bible's so clear, but yet Christians are saying, well, maybe it's not so clear because that way I don't get pounded at work. Maybe I'll lighten up on my on my position on homosexuality or lighten up on my position on, on transgender or lighten up on my, on my view of the Bible and this or and that because you don't know how hard it is at college to, to be a Christian holding to the word of God. I can't, I know. Benaniah. Benaniah was a man who had every disadvantage when he went to battle against the lion. Satan, that enemy. But yet, no matter how difficult it was, God gave him victory. Amen to that? One last thing here. It's interesting that now we see in verses 24 to 39 a whole list of guys that we're going to have to wait till heaven to hear their stories, but all equally mighty. But interesting at the top of that list is not Joab, but the brother of Joab. And then down in verse 37, it, it tells us that the armor bearer of Joab was, but again, it doesn't mention Joab. Guys, we've read, we know Joab was the warrior above all of these guys. He was the number one mighty soldier of valor more than any, but yet he's not mentioned in this list. Why? because he never submitted himself to the will of the king at all. David makes peace with Saul's general Abner. Joab kills him in a very deceitful way. Then David makes peace with Absalom's guys by making um, uh, Amasa general, and he, in the same sneaky way, kills him. And David made it clear, do not kill Absalom, Joab killed him. In 1 Kings chapter 2, he tells Solomon, make sure that guy doesn't go down in peace. He's poisonous. And he had his general kill um, Joab. I I just want to make a a note here. This is the word of God. (laughs) God's word doesn't call Joab one of the mighty men of valor. In his books, but, but he was, yes, on the earth he was, but not in God's books. He has no mention. It's interesting that there's a lot of guys that are going to be like Joab. They're going to be crying out to the Lord as they come to those pearly gates and say, Lord, um, open unto me also those gates. And the Lord's going to say, as he says in Matthew 7, no. I don't know you. Oh, yes, I prophesied. I did miracles. I, I was one of David's mightiest of men. Joab, you know my name. And the Lord says, be gone, you doer of iniquity. 
you never did my will. He doesn't argue and say, no, you didn't prophesy. You didn't do miracles. Remember, Judas went out with the apostles and did miracles, even cast out demons. But yet we know Judas has no portion in heaven. And here Joab in the same way was never a man fully submitted and he also is gonna be, Lord, Lord, be gone. You never submitted your life to my will. And so as we look at these examples that God's given us, I think the key thing of all is just to come and say, Lord, am I in that book? <laughs> whether my story is told to men on earth or whether I'm in that list of names, is my name in that book of life? Here's an interesting point. In Revelation, it says those who are cast into the lake of fire and the list doesn't start with rapists or murderers. The very first thing on the list is the cowards. Interesting. Look it up, Revelation 21. The very first thing on the list that are gonna be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever with the devil and his angels are cowards. People who knew they needed to walk as warriors, as mighty men of valor, but instead just wanted to fly under the radar and <laughs> be as little Christians as they had to, beat their bodies in subjection to obey God as little as they have to. If you want me to deny myself and take up the cross, where's the smallest cross with the least amount of splinters? Okay, here it is. I got this little one here. I'm doing it. They give little, they serve little, they seek God little, but yet they want to be counted with the greats. And the Lord's books will reveal it in that day. And this is why, again, the word of God is a two-edged sword piercing us to help us see the thoughts, the intentions of our heart, to stop us in our tracks to say, Lord, am I saying, Lord, Lord, and not doing what you say? Or am I really living in submission to your will? Great acts, but yet not faithful. Great acts, but not clinging to the word of God. Great acts, but not lifting up holy hands in prayer. Moments, months, you did great, but you're not being faithful in season, out of season. Lord, we come before you now, and we know that your word once again is searching our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us, cowardly. Are we walking as mighty men, mighty women, mighty children, mighty elderly people? That even the older here amongst here would say, well, I was a mighty man of valor, I retired. We don't see that <laughs> in your Bible. Well, I'm too young. No, David was a little boy when he was a mighty man of valor. The lion, the bear, Goliath. Lord, no more excuses. As for me, Lord, I can't say, I can't speak for anybody else. But as for me and my house, my life, I want to be a mighty man of valor. I want to take up the cross, the biggest, the most splintery one I can find. Deny myself, beat my body in subjection, that dying would be present in me, that life would be in everyone else. That I would stand in that lintel field, even though it's worthless to man, yet you've called me to be faithful in that little field. Lord, search us now, let your word that two-edged sword, the truth of it, pierce us and, and work on us. 
we're going to sing this song of worship, and then after that, some leaders are going to be on the front and on the sides. If you're sick here, or you just need encouragement, if you want to share something, they can pray with you, just say, pray for me. The Bible says this is what God's given us, the elders of the church for, to pray with you and anoint with oil and, and see the work of God done. Or you can just sit there and maybe ask the guy next to you to pray for you. Let's, let's just seek the Lord here in these last few minutes we have. Lord, we don't want to just hear a sermon and leave. We now want to press in on your throne and, and come and wash, take our hair and wash your feet with our hair and, and to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, heal me, wash me. Mm.